Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing better than you. And we humbly ask this morning that you would teach us from your word about suffering, the heart of suffering that we may understand and that we may be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the beginning of my third year teaching at a small Seventh-day Adventist Christian school. And I was teaching uh, in a multi-grade classroom of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And there was typically a total of about 12 to 15 students in the class. There were only three teachers in the entire school, and there was a secretary, and then there was a teacher's aide. And one of the teachers was also acting as principal. And so by year three of my teaching experience, I was already feeling overworked, underpaid, and confined to a very seemingly small reality of life. And I know there's some teachers in here today. My story is just my story. <laughs> I hope you love what you're doing. <laughs> and I kept saying to myself, this can't possibly be it. This can't possibly be it. I was exhausted. And so once the third year started, I quickly realized that three of my students were behind in mathematics, and one of them so behind that I'd have to drop down two grade levels of math and then attempt to teach them that and catch them up to their, their current level. And of course, as a teacher, you don't mind doing that, except the problem or the concern is always time. Where do you get the time, right? I was already teaching three rotations of math. That would then increase to five, besides all of the other subjects that I was teaching, English, science, social studies, PE, keyboarding, recess duty, extracurriculars, Bible, and organizing chapel. Where do I get the time? So I'd need to use my lunch breaks, and any other breaks to catch these students up on material. I was tired, I was frustrated. So I went to the principal and to have a little chat about some possible solutions of how to manage the load. What can we do here? Can we, you know, explore some options? Needless to say, the conversation didn't go exactly how I'd imagined it. Thought it would have been pretty peaceful. 
So I explained the situation, talked about what are some ideas, a few things we could do. You know what she said to me? She said, this is just the way it is. Teachers burn out all the time. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what did you say? Look, she basically told me that I had to do it. I had to do it and I had to suck it up and go for it. Well, you know me. <laughs> I didn't like that answer. <laughs> and, and also, coming from an individual, this principal, who I thought rarely sacrificed her comfort for others, there was very little suffering in her service, I was upset. Let's just say the conversation didn't end well. Pray for your pastor, all right? But for the rest of the year, I was there teaching five rotations of math, using my lunch breaks, my free time to catch students up on academic essentials. To be continued. As we've been journeying through the book of First Peter for the last several weeks, we've come to the last chapters. And the Apostle Peter, before concluding the letter in First Peter, says something that, in my opinion, uh, many people would not like to hear. The letter of First Peter is addressed to persecuted Christians living in the five regions of Asia Minor, which modern-day Turkey, so we've got portions of Italy, Greece, Albania, um, even Egypt, Israel, Lebanon. And so at this time, when the letter of First Peter is being written, around AD 62 to 64, Christianity was a very, very new faith, and believers were suffering persecution under the Roman government as a result. All right, so now, exactly what type of persecution were they facing, right? Christianity was considered a superstition in opposition, in opposition to the public religion, okay? It's like if you didn't believe what everyone else believed in Rome, then you were classified as a sect or a superstition or even a cult. And so around AD 64, Nero, the Roman emperor, he blames the great fire of Rome in AD 64 on the Christians, right? Now the great fire basically... Uh, scholars say that it was a result of poor infrastructure in Rome. So fires would break out all the time, the city was crowded, there weren't an, enough uh, uh, restrictions and building codes and, and all of these things. There were fires all the time. People hated the Christians, so Nero blamed the Christians for this big fire that lasted over a week and destroyed so many things. So, as a result of that, people were mad at the Christians and persecution picks up, right? So, what happens then? People were arrested. Once they got arrested, obviously they were looking for confessions and for uh, tattletales, right, to tell where the other Christians were. And if you confessed, then you were tortured, right, killed, etc. So this is going on during the time Peter is writing this letter. And they did all kinds of things, burn people at the stake and um, use their body as lampposts, and it was, it was horrific. So, Christians were treated like the criminals of the day, worse than the criminals of the day. And claiming Christianity at this time was basically 
an easy death sentence, right? It was like, sign me up for the worst kind of suffering, okay? I want to do that if you were a Christian. They were being charged uh, with being enemies of all other people because they would withdraw from the activities of society. They were just outcasts. They were the scapegoats for political jokes and problems and natural disasters. Basically, just blame the Christians. And so a couple uh, different governors, this is what they did. They would say, okay, if you're a Christian, come and force them to recant their belief and then say a prayer to one of the, the Roman gods, and then they would go free. And what ended up happening is some of them recanted and some of them didn't. And the ones that didn't, they were tortured and they were killed. And so despite this, Christianity continued to spread. Spreading fast, right? And the Roman rulers thought, look, if we pick up persecution, then we can stamp this out. But the blood of the martyrs became seed and birthed more believers. It was problematic because everywhere where this Christian teaching went, there were disturbances, there were riots. We see that in Acts. This was illegal in Rome, and so they wanted to stamp Christianity out. So with all of this going on during the time of Peter's writing 1 Peter, Peter sends this letter to encourage those going through persecution. And so he instructs them on how to live as a Christian un under deathly circumstances. He says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you also may be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear his name. Okay, in a very omissive paraphrase, okay, he basically is like, look, don't be surprised that you're being persecuted. In fact, rejoice. Rejoice that you get to suffer like Christ. Don't suffer as a criminal. Rejoice that you get to suffer innocently as a Christ follower. Hmm. Sounds like something I'm not trying to hear. Peter, you call this encouragement? Not helping. Who actually wants to suffer? I was looking for, you know, something else. But wait a second. Wait a second. This is Peter writing, okay? How can Peter encourage anyone else to endure suffering? Because according to, to Scripture, I remember the story of the crowing rooster. You remember that story? Let me, let me tell you about. Let me tell you about Peter. So Jesus and the disciples have the Last Supper, right? And Jesus tells the disciples that they would all run away from him that night as the trial of the cross drew near. 
And Peter was like, no. Even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. Okay, Peter. So Jesus tells him, look, before the rooster crows or before dawn, you'll deny me three times. Peter was adamant. He's like, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Okay, Peter. Hours later, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in defense, Peter, you know, trying to do his thing, Peter cuts off the soldier's ear, right? And Jesus is like, mm -mm, put that back, put that back, put your sword back. And Jesus heals the soldier's ear. And Peter's like, okay, okay. Everyone else flees. The disciples are gone. And so they take Jesus into the uh, courts of Caiaphas, the high priest, and Peter follows at a distance. And he gets there, and Jesus is being questioned inside, and Peter's watching from outside what's, what's going on in there. And as he's watching, a little servant girl comes up to him, and she says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. Peter, I don't know what you mean, he says. Okay, so he moves to another location, you know, tries to get some space. Another servant girl sees him. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I don't know the man, he says. Then a few people came up to him afterwards and said, certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. So then he invokes a curse on himself and with swearing, he says, I do not know the man. Immediately following, the rooster crows. The book of John records that as soon as the rooster crowed, Jesus turns and looks out from the, high, from the hall of the high priest right in the eyes of Peter. Peter runs off, weeping bitterly. This same Peter is now writing to the believers in Turkey and telling them to rejoice in their suffering for the name of Christ. Peter, you got scared off by a little girl. What do you mean? How did we get here? When did the change come? What happened. This is what happened. Peter got converted. That's what happened. Peter was born again. Peter was changed. Jesus had told Peter way before that, look, when he experienced this spiritual birth, this new birth experience, this change, this conversion, then he would then be able to strengthen other believers, but not before them. And so after Jesus' resurrection, he meets with his disciples one last time before his ascension on the seashore. And he's telling Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Take care of the flock. Feed my sheep. Take care of the other followers. Take care of the believers. So somewhere between Peter's denial and then Christ's ascension into heaven, something happened. Because by Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching boldly about Jesus in the same place that he had denied him before. But now there's a multitude of people, not just a couple of servant girls. And he's unashamed. And he's bold. 
And, and, and this time, he makes a profession and says that he follows the lowly Galilean. He follows the man from Nazareth, the one that was crucified for the likeness of treason. What happened? This is what happened. The Holy Spirit had captured his heart. He surrendered. He, he, he found his purpose. He found his being. He found his fulfillment in Christ. He found a savior. Something, something clicked. You know, the Bible describes that Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus, the, uh, um, a ruler, a Pharisee, a rich Pharisee, um, at night. And he's explaining to him this, like, new birth process. And he's like, look, it's like the wind. The wind blows where you want it to go. It comes, it blows here, goes there. And you don't see it, but you hear the sound. You see the effects. But it's almost invisible. And he says, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's like the work he comes, you can only see the effects. You don't know where he's coming or where he's going, but you know he's there because like the wind, the leaves rustle. And for the person, you start to see changes. I was a freshman in college when my life changed. I entered my freshman year at Michigan State University, angry at life, angry at family, done with religion, career-focused, money-driven, and making moves as this up-and-coming networker for the college party scene. That's how I went into college. Before the end of my freshman year, I had stopped partying. I lost all the friends I'd made. I started attending church regularly, and I started a Bible study at the end of my hall in the college dorm. What happened? It was a complete 180. It was insane. All I wanted to do was know who God was. That's all I wanted to do. I was obsessed with scripture. I would read it voracious just over and over. I wanted to know. By my sophomore year, I had come back from selling Christian literature. I've told you guys this before. All summer in the hot sun with a bunch of vegan church folk. And it was so funny. When I came back, one of my classmates from the previous year, they saw me upon return and they looked me up and down and they're like, <laughs> I lost a lot of weight, obviously. And they, they looked at me and they said, girl, you got dark, skinny, and weird. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. <laughs> I got rebaptized September 1st, 2007. And the night before my baptism, I said a prayer. I had always struggled with this like internal anger for various reasons. And I saw that most of the Christians that I knew, they weren't really happy. Right? They were kind of just doing things to do things, right? So I got on my knees the night before my rebaptism. I said, Look, God, if I commit to this thing, 
Please make me a happy Christian. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning, got baptized. Not that there's any magic in the water or something, but I was never the same. I was never the same. And so years later, I I penned the song, A New Day. I was trying to capture in words the experience of my conversion and the answer to that prayer. And so I wrote, I wrote this, I said, something happened deep inside. I'll sing it. Something happened deep inside. An empty soul is filled with light. Love, joy, peace, and faith abide. Knowing Jesus is my light. And it can happen. It will happen. We can all be washed clean. It can happen. It will happen. Another chance to be reborn free. A new day. A new day. Look, something happened to Peter. Something happened to Peter. So he writes this letter during the time of persecution to the Christians. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Expect this, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet, if any of you suffers, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. Let's talk about suffering for a second. Now, we are not currently suffering the type of religious persecution here in New York City that the early Christians were suffering in AD 64, okay? So I can't compare that type of suffering and that persecution uh, to this time. However, we do suffer as human beings. When we look at the world around us, people are suffering. And suffering happens for a few reasons. Okay, suffering on the one hand is just a part of the human experience. It's not something we have control over. We have natural disasters, illnesses happen. Things just happen. Then suffering occurs as a result of our own evils, our own decisions, and our own choices. Okay, a very, very, very simplistic example is that I ate a lot of candy last week for my birthday. So much that I spent the rest of this week <laughs> trying not to get sick. <laughs> taking this, sitting in the sauna, taking these vitamins, etc. I did that to myself. Okay, that was my choice. <laughs> and then 
suffering occurs because of the evil or the bad choices of another person. And many times, <laughs> we wish suffering upon others because of their evil. They're like, he deserved that. She deserved that. And they do sometimes. And at some level, every single person suffers in life. And so Peter is like, look, as a believer, if suffering comes into your experience, right, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Suffering happens to everyone, full stop. And as a believer, on top of that, just expect that religious suffering will happen to you at some point. He says in the letter, if suffering comes your way, meaning don't go out and look for it, okay? <laughs> don't intentionally plan to suffer, okay? If suffering comes your way, rejoice. Rejoice if you get to suffer on behalf of the name of Christ because you're experiencing what Christ experienced when he came into this world to spread goodness. Rejoice because you're doing something right. Suffer because of the good you put out, not the evil. Suffer because you're innocent, not guilty. Anyone who pushes back or walks contrary to the common state or like accepted state of wrong will face resistance and suffering. Anyone. For example, that is the story of the civil rights movement in the United States, right? Pushing back against the evil of racism in society and inequality. And those who participated in the movement faced resistance and suffering, even to death. Anyone who pushes back or walks contrary to the common state or accepted state of wrong will face resistance and suffering. Anyone, even God, even God. God faces resistance, God suffers. God suffered and God suffers. We call him long suffering for a reason. Look, and, and this is actually the heart of the gospel, that you, that me, that the rest of humanity contribute to the evil of the world and impact each other, and then instead of us paying the ultimate penalty for that, God pays it and suffers on our behalf. Now, do you suffer immediate consequences for your actions? Yes. But does God provide a chance to start again? Yes. And then, as God works within you, you know, like the wind, changing you day by day, he suffers through all the mistakes in life that you're going to make. <laughs> Long suffering. And he sticks around so that the light of goodness that exudes from your soul impacts the darkness that surrounds us. If we follow the footsteps of Christ, 
will also realize that if you're going to endure hostility or suffering because you believe in Jesus, then the only other reason you should suffer is on behalf of another, of others. Look, Peter is calling us to be like Jesus. To be people who don't suffer because of the wrong that they did, but because they believe in the uplifting of humanity and they suffer for causes such as justice and the orphans and the widows, the migrants and refugees of the world, the homeless and the hungry, the poor and the sick. If you're going to endure suffering, let it be for these things. Not because you're actually a murderer or a thief or in the church's case, the ones causing the suffering. If you suffer because you're bringing goodness, truth, light, equality into the world, the Spirit of God rests on you. You're blessed. You don't have to be ashamed about that. You can wear the tag of a Christian boldly. And I know the current state of the term Christian is not very popular. So you can wear the tag believer. <laughs> But here's my last point. In my opinion, there's only one real reason why an individual would endure suffering for another person. Unless there's some underlying selfish motive, there's really only one reason that I can see. People suffer for others because they love them. Because they love them. That's the story of the gospel. Think of somebody that you love. Your spouse, your family member, your friend. You do anything. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God, who the scripture defines as love, he that loves not does not know God, for God is love, comes down from heaven to live and die on behalf of others. Suffering on behalf of others, not because of what he did, but he suffered on behalf of humanity. Love is the underlying motive to the kind of suffering described here in 1 Peter. Love is the underlying source or motive for every principle that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven. If you're gonna suffer, let it be for another. You see, Peter loved God. He was willing to do anything. He was sold out. Think about, I'll catch a grenade for you. Jump in front of a train for you. I'll do anything. He was happy to suffer on behalf of the man from Nazareth. 
It was an honor to walk in the footsteps of a man who changed his life and brought light and goodness into the world. So he tells believers, look, if you love God, the book of James says, you'll count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience or long-suffering. 1 Corinthians 13, we quote this all the time at weddings, right? If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and become a martyr, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. And so as a believer, you will at some point suffer for the name that you carry, for the man that you follow. But if you're going to suffer, let it be for the cause of good. At the end of my third year of teaching, a full year of minimal breaks and many rotations of math, graduation had finally come. And I was transitioning to another school, and so it was more like a goodbye ceremony. And I'll never forget one of the students who I sacrificed my lunch breaks for and my morning minutes. She said a few words in her speech, thanking the staff, thanking me. She gave a very heartfelt thank you, and then she turned around and she hugged me for the longest time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We were all crying, tears streaming down. It was a hard year. But that was a sufficient reward for me. That was a sufficient reward. And Peter reminds believers and says, look, you'll be glad and rejoice when his glory is revealed. When he comes again, when your suffering sees the end or the reason, it'll be sufficient, you'll be okay, you'll understand. So what are you willing to suffer for? For truth? For justice, for love, for others. We learn from the example of Jesus that, look, the deeper you love, the more you suffer. The deeper you love, the more you suffer. When you go about your life, when you see things that need change, you see things that call for a need for opposition and, and assistance, are you willing to suffer for it? to set yourself aside, to lay down your cross and fight for the dignity of another person? Or... And if you are, rejoice, because your Savior would have done the same thing. I hope and pray that that's your prayer, that that's your desire, and may God make it our experience. Amen.